Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Witnesses of the King. And today we're going to talk about the encouraging preaching of the Apostle Peter that we find in Acts chapter 3, following the healing of a man who was born without the use of his legs. So miraculous healing has taken place. A great uh, amount of attention has, has obviously been brought upon this as this man is celebrating and clinging to Peter and John in the temple. And many people gather around and Peter stands up and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. That's where we are in Acts chapter 3. We're continuing a series called Witnesses of the King. And indeed, we're taking a look at how God, by his Holy Spirit, began and, and continued the work of Jesus Christ through his uh, apostles and through all the disciples of Jesus Christ in the very first days of the church. So an exciting thing to look at, a great opportunity to peer into uh, the interpretation of the apostles, those who were firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus and his ministry and his resurrection. And we get to look into their world and see what it was like and see what they were doing and see what their priorities were so that we can share in those same priorities because the gospel is the same today as God does not change his encouraging truth and his encouraging message of salvation does not change. So we will be in Acts chapter 3 and we're going to pick it up about verse 11. And I want to point out, uh, we looked at the first sermon of Peter in three parts. We looked at the fact that it was Christocentric, that is Christ was the center of his subject matter. It was also biblical preaching. He constantly quoted the Old Testament and interpreted that in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it was very commanding preaching because he uh, just assumed he had the right to tell people what to do in response to this great message. And indeed, he did, and he does to this day, have that right and that authority. It was commanding preaching. But what we're going to see today is we're going to see another aspect of his preaching that's very important for us to pick up on and must be part of our preaching today as we proclaim the gospel to people. And it is this, that his preaching was indeed encouraging preaching. And so this encouraging preaching, uh, Peter brings forth the, what God is doing and what the ultimate end game of what God is doing is. He's going to call to mind in his hearers the things that were promised of God by his prophets long ago concerning this Messiah, this Christ that we know is Jesus of Nazareth. So let's pick up the text in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. We'll look at this together. It says this, it says, while he clung, that is this man who they had just healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in a portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father God, this reading of your scripture today, we pray that you'll bless it for our attempts to understand it are futile without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. These things and these great truths are spiritually discerned, so help us to lay aside our our biases, help to lay aside our own internal prejudices and even our own sins. Let us repent of those things so that we may hear the clear word from you and understand what you are saying through your servant Peter. Lord, I pray that you'll just be with us this day. Make yourself known and glorified. Encourage every hearer with these words today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there we have an interesting passage. And it begins, of course, with this miraculous healing. And then he gets up to explain, hey, it's not anything special about us that has healed this man, but this is Jesus. And that ought to be very interesting to some of his hearers, because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead. But Peter makes it clear, Jesus is still working. And it is him, it's through faith in his name, that this man was healed. Now, I want to point out, and this is something important to make a distinction about, first of all, is that there is a twofold invitation, a twofold appeal of Peter here to the people. And this will make a lot more sense if you understand this. Peter is appealing to them for national repentance and conversion. But at the same time, he's appealing to the Jews for individual repentance and conversion. And I think that's a fair interpretation of this passage. And indeed, it does seem to eliminate a lot of difficulties because we ask the question was, is Peter trying to here get the whole nation to repent? Uh, Or is Peter here just preaching an appeal like we do now that some of the individuals in the crowd hearing might repent and be saved? Uh, And the answer is yes, he's doing both. And this is the pattern of the entire Old Testament, if you really think about it, where there was always this opportunity for individuals to be found among the nation that were faithful, whether the nation as a whole was faithful or not. Likewise, what we see in the narrative of the history of Israel, all the way back to the time of Abraham and all the way through the the covenant on Sinai and their time in the promised land, is we see this, that there are times when the leadership would be completely in line with God and his priorities, and yet many of the people would not be. 
such as Moses in the time of the unfaithfulness of the spies, where two of the 12 spies sent into the land came back with a good report, but 10 of them didn't. And the majority wins over. And so all these unfaithful people, God says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. I'm only taking Joshua and Caleb in. And we see this in the time of the kings, where they could have a good king who was motivated, who tried to institute religious reforms in the nation and everything else, tried to lead them in a godly way. And yet we find the people of Israel acting unfaithfully, worshiping upon the high places, these other gods and things. Likewise, we often see very bad kings, but we see good and faithful prophets sent to those kings. We see good and faithful people among those. In fact, at one point, Elijah from the northern kingdom, which never had a good king, uh, Elijah, a faithful prophet of God, is kind of doing a great big woe is me out in the wilderness. He says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that's faithful. And he, he perceived that he was running for his life. And the Lord appeals to him and says, look, what makes you think you're the only one? I've got 7,000 that have never bowed the knee to Baal. And so there was always a faithful remnant. And so Peter's making this appeal, yes, to both. It was uh, God's desire that the entire nation would embrace the Messiah when he came, that their king would step aside and say, well, this is obviously the rightful king, that their priests would line up and say, he is obviously the fulfillment of what we've been doing here in the temple, but this is not the way it happened. And of course, God knew this was not the way it happened. The crucifixion was part of his plan all along. And so here Peter is preaching to the Jews. He's calling for this both national repentance, as we see by all the plural verbs that are here in verses 17 through 21. Everything here is plural. He says, I know that you, plural, acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, what God foretold, etc., etc. And then he gives a command, repent, therefore, and turn back. These are plural commands to them that times of refreshing, uh, may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And so the implication here uh, is that their repentance on a national level will bring back the Lord uh, to reign here uh, on earth from Israel. And yet, as we know from reading the rest of the story, they never did have a national kind of repentance, but many, many thousands of faithful Jews did believe this was, in fact, the whole early church was a Jewish church. It was converted Jews who believed in Jesus that as their coming Messiah, but yet the leadership was never on board. So many believed during the Gospels, followed Jesus, but the leadership always refused him. And God has always dealt with them this way nationally. Um, in Luke 19, verses 41 to 44, it's a very important scene here. And this coming of Jesus, particularly on this day, the, the day of what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, in that it was on this day that Messiah would come to Israel. And many of the people on that day sang messianic hymns, but the leadership ultimately failed to believe. They said, you got to shut these people up. They ought not to be saying those things. Now, that's just my paraphrase of what they said, but the leadership was not on board with what was happening. So Jesus pronounces this judgment, and he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
And then he speaks of the uh, siege of Jerusalem, and then he speaks shortly thereafter uh, to the disciples. Later in that week, he speaks of the destruction of the temple that takes place. But when we get here to the book of Acts, in Peter's first two sermons, and what he ultimately says to the leadership in chapters 4 and 5, which is very profound confrontations that Peter has with them, very strong words he has for them uh, to say, it really is a turning point. And in fact, I think the ultimate turning point, the, the very, very last straw for Israel nationally, I believe is found in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's great sermon to them. I recommend you read that ahead of time before we get there because it is a scathing rebuke of the people of Israel. And afterwards, they're so enraged by what he says that they stone him to death. And so I think that is a very last straw for them because from that point forward in the book of Acts, as predicted by Jesus, the gospel then turns to the Gentiles, turns to the nations other than Israel. So I needed to sort that out for you, that Peter is preaching to the nation for them to turn, and he's also summoning each and every person in his hearing to be converted. And so even with all this great heaviness and this strong emphasis on their crucifixion of Jesus and this persistent national rejection of him, I want to point out in this sermon all the great encouragement here. I want you to see the wonderful encouragement that Peter has woven through his sermon. And we know this is a summary sermon of what he said. Luke, in the sermons in the book of Acts, he summarizes them. He takes the major points. He boils them down, gives us the outline, so to speak. Because we know, as it said in the first sermon in Acts chapter 2, that with many other words he encouraged the people. So he'd bring forth, he mentions alludes to many scriptures here in Acts chapter 3. He would have expounded on those scriptures. He would have quoted those scriptures, and he would have made it more clear exactly what he was saying. But the outline we have here is very encouraging. What we're going to see today is we're going to see that God is patient and forgiving. God is restoring and refreshing and working in this world right now, today. So that's the, uh, the outline I want to present to you. Uh, by way of uh, just a simple five points here. And first of all this, God is patient. The entire Old Testament from Genesis 12 all the way through the book of Malachi is a testimony to God's patience or as the uh, some of the older translations have, his long-suffering with their nation of Israel. And in Acts chapter 7, you really get schooled on the issue by our servant uh, Stephen. But more recently, what had happened in the recent history, when we come to Acts chapter 3, is the leaders had rejected already John the Baptist. They had rejected already Jesus, even crucifying him. And they not only denied him, they murdered him. And still God was giving an invitation to them. He was still reaching out. He was still extending his hand to appeal to them to repent and be converted. And so even from the cross, I want you to remember this, as Jesus hung on the cross, one of the final things that he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Now I want to draw your mind back and remind you that after their exodus, after God miraculously with great signs and wonders brought them out of the land of Egypt, he then dealt with them in the wilderness. And he had them in that wilderness after they sent in spies to the promised land. And the will of the people was to not go into the promised land that God had promised, that God had promised to give to them for many centuries, ever since Abraham. They decided out of their fear of man, they obviously feared man more than God, not to go in. And so he sentences them to wander in the wilderness. And from that point until they finally went in to the promised land was 38 years. Interestingly, Jesus was crucified in either 32 or 33 AD, depending on which one uh, you prefer. Scholars debate about it. It's ultimately not terribly important, although it would give us a good Thursday if it was in 32 but it would better fulfill the idea of three days, three nights if it were in 32. Never mind. 32 or 33, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So depending on how you account it, that is 37 or 38 years, approximately the same amount of time that they wandered the wilderness before finally getting to go into the promised land. It's that amount of time God gives them from the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus until the final destruction of their temple, of their entire religious order which has been gone to this day, almost 2,000 years. And so, you know, he, they, God is patient. He gives them this great amount of time, this huge chunk of time in order to repent and believe. And this is the character of God. It's one of his basic attributes. Look what it says about the gospel, uh, what Peter says about it in Second Peter. And this is uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as of one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, uh, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so God has always been very patient. He wants to bring people to repentance. He wants to bring people to know him. And this is a powerfully important message for us, even to this day, that God's patience with Israel, it continues into the, the gospel time when he takes it to all nations, that God is patient with us, each one of us. It's one of his basic attributes, as we see in the psalm. You, O Lord, are a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's that word for patient or long-suffering. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And also in 103, verse 8, the same word, Lord, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And indeed, isn't this interesting that this is a also supposed to be an attribute of his people as given as a fruit of the spirit fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience and so his people are to reflect his character and to also be patient and we can be patient because he has been patient with us he has been long-suffering with us we can be long-suffering and patient with others Indeed, that is the basis of our patience with others, is how patient God was with us. That is our grace we extend to others and how gracious God was to us. 
Remember Jesus' parable of the debtors. There were two debtors. One owed this tremendous debt to his master, so huge that he would never be able to, to pay it back. His master forgave that debt. And yet, this person who had all this debt forgiven, he goes to someone who owed him a relatively small amount and threatens him and, and demands the money from him. And his master finds out about it. And his master says, you know, you, you fool, you were forgiven so much, yet you could not forgive. And that's why Jesus is able to say, unless we forgive, we cannot have been forgiven. And indeed, this is true. And that's our next point, is that God is very forgiving. God is very forgiving. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. If we look at verse 19, what we said here, verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And this repent and turn back or be converted, as it is in some translations, uh, is a powerful appeal. Repentance is a theme throughout all of the book of Acts, indeed throughout all of the Bible. Repentance is a mark of true faith. Without repentance, no one will be saved. Okay, so repentance is this crucial ingredient that reveals true faith. And Acts 3.26, this is actually the blessing. Look at how Peter pronounces the blessing upon us. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. Oh, bless me by what? Bless me by a good promotion, a happy and healthy life, and a bountiful family, and, and all the good things I, I deserve here on earth? No, no, no. The blessing is this, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That is the blessing. Forgiveness is the primary blessing of the gospel. Like it or not, that's what he clearly makes this out to be. This idea of the sin being blotted out is such an incredible idea. I want you to really dwell on this and think about this for, for a moment. Pencils come with erasers. That's like the best thing about a pencil. When I was uh, coming up through and learning engineering in college, uh, I loved pencils because pencils meant I could correct my mistakes. And pens weren't as friendly about that. And in fact, that's why sometimes people use pens. Sometimes people insist on pens, especially for legal documents and things, because they cannot be erased. They cannot be blotted out. Now, even with a pen, though, you can whitewash over it with your liquid paper, with your correcting fluid, and you can cover it over. And this word from the Greek, it would cover that idea also, whether it's erased, whether it's covered over. The point is on the holy ledger, on God's holy ledger, your sin is gone. It was written there, and now it's not. And this is the ledger that's going to come out in your final judgment. God's going to bring it out and plop it onto the desk in front of him, and he's going to see what you got there. And has it been blotted out by Jesus Christ or not? For there's no other way under heaven by which to be saved. And so this uh, idea of having the sins blotted out is incredibly encouraging. And this is the biggest point of the gospel. Here's how Paul sums it up to Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. 
This is the ultimate blessing of the Christian life. Listen how this is described way back in Psalm 32, some thousand years before Jesus came. They understood the value of forgiveness. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose mouth, or in whose spirit, there is no deceit. Boy, is that powerful? I mean, it's it's saying that this this great, and, and saying it twofold here to put a great emphasis on it, that forgiveness, that having your transgression forgiven, that having your sin covered, is is the blessing, is a great blessing. It is happiness to have that done. This is powerful. We recently traveled uh, to to the islands in the uh, in the Atlantic, and I always get anxious when I go through airports because there's so much to do. You've got to keep track of your luggage. You've got to go through security. You've got to remember, okay, did I did I pack everything I needed and all that? All this stuff's on your mind and everything, but. I have observed that once I get checked in and through security and I have physically arrive at the gate where my plane is to come in or may already be sitting there waiting for us, then I relax. Then I'm okay. In fact, I don't like to stop and eat between the security checkpoint and the gate. I want to go to the gate first, even if we're an hour, two hours early for our flight, even if our flight is delayed. I want to go there. I want to see where the gate is. I want to see the the place where they're going to check us in and put us on the plane. And once that is done, I'm relaxed. Once I see the gate, okay, let's go have a coffee. Let's sit down and relax. Let's just enjoy a little time together, have some conversation while we wait on our plane. And this indeed, this is a picture of this this blessing of having your sins forgiven because the big thing is handled. The biggest thing there is is handled. And I say, I see many people not enjoying their lives and they have many things by which they could enjoy their lives. They have material prosperity. They have good health and they just can't seem to find blessedness. They can't find happiness. And in many cases, the reason is because they have not had their sins forgiven. Thank God that he is forgiving, literally. Thank God that he is forgiving. Praise him for his forgiveness. For there is no greater blessing in this life. Forgiveness is the greatest thing. But it's not the only thing. There's also a refreshing that is mentioned here. Look at verse 20 as we get to that. It says this. It says that times of refreshing. So repent, turn back, so that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, this word refreshing is a very rare word in the Bible, but it's associated with the idea of being cooled, particularly by the evaporation of water. So it would come to be if someone washes after working a hot day, the kind of relief that comes through a a cooling bath when you are hot, when you are tired, it is something that can refresh. When my wife and I were married, we went on a a backpacking trip. And if you've never backpacked, it's, it's fairly interesting because you hike all day 
and you find a camping spot where there's probably no one else camping. In fact, by the time you get there, there's probably no one else within a mile of you, no other human being. And, and you set up camp and you, you camp there. But refreshing comes to mind because there were many mountain streams to cross in our hiking. And when you come to a mountain stream, if it is not something you can hop across or jump across rock to rock, uh, you don't want to get your boots wet. So you literally take your boots off in order just to walk across the stream. It, that is, if you care about your feet being healthy. But those streams, those mountain streams were so cold and so refreshing on your feet that when you first plunged your foot beneath the surface, it was pain. It was a shock because it was so cold and your feet were so hot from the journey. And now this barefoot plunges into this cold water. But by the time you cross and by the time you get to the other side, you are feeling rejuvenated because you have had the, the soreness of your muscles and your joints that have been refreshed by this cold water that naturally gets rid of the swollenness of the swelling and difficulties that you have. And by the time we dry off and get our boots back on everything else and we get cleaned up a little bit, we get some fresh water, we're ready to go even further. This is what this word is speaking of. It's used that way in 2 Samuel, this idea of refreshing yourself at the riverside after a long journey. This is what he intends to bring in the conversation here. God wants to remind these people, Israel, I want you to think about what it means that this Messiah is coming to you. And what it means is refreshing because you have had a long, weary journey as a nation. You have struggled with sin. You have been trampled upon by the nations. You have been oppressed and you have been harassed. And now, comes your Messiah to give you rest from those things, to give you freedom, to give you victory over your enemies, to give you peace with God and peace with your fellow man and obedience of your nation and all the nations are going to come along. This is all that Peter is going to pull into this conversation simply by suggesting your Christ has come because they knew from the prophecies what he would bring. Their vision of the messianic age was that they would have this ruler that would be a good ruler, that would be a mighty ruler, that would bring about peace in Israel and indeed the world. There would be material prosperity, an elimination of the poverty and famine and want that oppressed so many in the world and indeed does to this day. There's going to be justice in the world, an end to oppression that leaves people in despair. The oppression that creates inequity among peoples, Messiah is going to bring refreshing and indeed he is bringing it and he ultimately will bring it. And to be real, these people were dealing with Roman oppression and they were dealing with these difficulties of having been trampled on by the Greek Empire prior to that and the Persians prior to that and the Babylonians prior to that. And these were people weary from the road. He would do away with all those things. He'd get rid of the political corruption among their own people. And there would be no more need for these uprisings, no more fear of war. Jesus will return. And although we cannot completely imagine what his earthly reign is going to be like, it will at least be all of these things. 
But right now, he gives a foretaste. Right now, his people are refreshed. Right now, we are being refreshed by this deliverance from sin. Remember, Peter said that's the primary blessing here. He's going to bless you by turning you from your sin. And he's given us a foretaste of what is to come. The peace with God and the peace of mind that we enjoy now is a blessing and it is a refreshing. And he is refreshing in that he eliminates all confusion concerning our priorities of life. We have no need to worry about anything in this world. Jesus commanded us, don't be anxious. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and your necessities will be taken care of. You don't have to worry about where you're going to sleep and what you're going to wear and, and what you're going to eat because he's going to give all that we need as we pursue his kingdom first. The most important priority of every believer in Jesus Christ is the furthering of the gospel, furthering it in our lives, letting God do his work in us, but very, very importantly, and most importantly, bringing that gospel message to others. We cooperate together in the church to do that. He builds us up together. He equips us for the work. He is refreshing us. And he is also restoring. Not only is this an issue of refreshing, it is an issue of restoration. God is restoring all things. And this is what he says in verse 21 here. He says, uh, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Jesus has ascended. He will return and then he will restore all things. He will finish the work that he has begun. This restoration of all things, how can we picture this? How can we understand this? Probably the easiest place to go is Genesis chapter 3. I'll leave this reading up to you, but starting in verse 14 in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced judgments upon the serpent and upon the, the woman and upon the man in order, and those things are the curses that came upon the earth with sin. All death, all thorns and thistles and sickness and labor and difficulties, all these things came into the world through sin. And as God pronounces these curses upon Adam and Eve, we look back to that to understand what restoration is. We understand that Satan will no longer be an issue. His head will be crushed by Jesus and indeed has been. He has been defeated already and he is still operative in the world, but his end is imminent. And the woman, the pain in childbearing and the difficulty in raising children, all these things, her, her contrary desire to her husband, that is the, the upside down order that the family gets into and things like that that cause so much difficulty and, and breaking up of families and things like that, those things are going to be reversed. Uh, the, the cursing of the ground, the thorns and thistles, the pain of toil all of our lives, of working just to survive, these things will all be turned back. They will all be brought to an end with the return of Christ. And finally, the last enemy, death itself. And he says, you're going to return to the dust because out of it you were taken. Death itself, as Paul describes it as the final enemy, will be done away with. And so this is a, a great, great look at what he means by the restoring. These things are going to be restored. God has brought Jesus and now 
his his body, the church, preaches the word of God to bring many into Jesus Christ to be saved, to be delivered from death to life right now, and then to await the Savior and the restoration of all things. He brings this restoration starting now. We live in an already but not yet kingdom. In Jesus Christ, we are experiencing many things already, but not all the things, not yet, but they will come. And so we live in an already not yet. Almost everything that's going to be restored, we get a taste of now. And indeed, we, and it reminds us of the final restoration to come. He's taken our heart of stone. He's given us a heart of flesh. He is making us new day by day. And we as his creations, we are striving together with God toward the prize of this upward call in Christ. It is so beautiful to see that indeed God is restoring. God does care. He is concerned. Have you ever had someone object to you saying, if God is so good, why? And then they mention something bad. Why did this child die? Why is my mother sick? Why are these difficulties happening? And the answer is very simple, you know, that they're assuming they're making a bad assumption in their accusation of God. They're not asking a question usually. Usually what they're doing is they're pointing a finger in accusation. If God were so good, this wouldn't happen. Therefore, there must not be a God. Well, not only is that faulty logic, it's just foolishness because it's making the assumption that he's not doing something about it. That he is made available to the sick and the hurting and the dying and the abused and, and the neglected. He has made opportunity for them to be renewed, to have eternal life, to be with him forever. And he will roll all these things back and he will do away with all of these things. The, the nice thing about God is where we started. He's patient. Because Truth be told, if you demand for God to do away with all that is wicked and evil and wrong in this world, you will be sentencing yourself to annihilation. Let that sink in for a minute. If we really want what is wrong with the world to be taken out of the world, that's going to include me. If only I could be restored. If only he were to start in here and change my heart. If only he were to forgive and blot out my sins so that when he does finally remove all that is wicked, that is wrong, that is bad in the world, I can remain. Only by his grace, only by the work and the blood of Christ taking our place in wrath, can he restore order without destroying all mankind. This is the great grace of the gospel, that he is restoring all things, that by his grace and through his patience and his gospel and the work of Christ on the cross, now we can look forward to a time when the curse will be no more. Death will not knock on anyone's door. We can leave it open. Let the blessings flow in. God is restoring and God, therefore, is working. He's working at this right now. These are all things in process. Have you noticed that, you know, the, the first is an attribute of God the, and, and the second arguably an attribute, but could be a verb. And the rest, refreshing, restoring, reworking. I put all those in our present continuous because he's doing all those things right now. Look how God was working 
even through Peter at this time. If we look back there in chapter 4, verse 4, it's right after where we read, it says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Well, the last time we received a number, it was in chapter 2, and that was after Peter's first sermon. And that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed. And now the number has grown to 5,000. And it's probably just numbering the men or the, the heads of household. And so you're really looking at a great number more. But nevertheless, it's this. Look, God is working. God is working. Peter preaches this, and it doesn't fall on deaf ears. It falls on many ears that hear. And many years obey. And many of those people repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and were added to the number of church that day. God has promised to do so. He has promised to send his servant to declare his word. And by his spirit, he convicts and converts people who then repent and trust in Jesus Christ. How good is that? How gracious is that? And this is the order in which uh, God designed for it to be. As Jesus prayed for you and I in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, he prayed this for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples that were with him, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is what God is doing. He is sending his word out into the world, and it is through that word that people believe. John gave that as the purpose of his gospel. In the, toward the end of his gospel, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is how it works. This is what Paul describes in Romans 10. How in the world is anyone going to believe if there's not someone to bring them the word of God? It is through the word of God that faith is found, that belief comes, and salvation happens. Well, this is powerfully important, and, and I want to take us back to Psalm 32 again. We looked at Psalm 32. We looked at the first couple verses here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at these great blessings pronounced here. And then listen to the description of this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. That means when he wouldn't admit his sin. See, David may have written this after his repentance, after having committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. And he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now look at this next part. Here's your encouragement. Here's where I want to end today. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. In other words, in the, in the time of trouble, which great waters often indicated trouble or invading armies or something of that nature, great noise and distraction. 
Think about the noisiness of life today. Think about how often your phone goes off and and demands your attention and interrupts your day. This is the rush of great waters. It's going to be hard to find God there. But wait, pause, stop right now and read the word of God that's on your screen or, or listen to my words as I repeat it. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I pray that time for you is today. My earnest desire is that today is the day of salvation for you. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know what the condition of your heart will be like tomorrow. So if you're convicted of your sins yet today, it is the time to to be saved. It is the time to repent. It is the time to get right before God. So please think about these things. Look how patient he is, that here we stand almost 2,000 years after Christ has come. His great patience and his forbearance, because look what he has put up with in these 2,000 years. And we think about our own lives and what he puts up with for us, and that's a great deal, for we fall short and we, we constantly ignore his ways or his will. But think about humanity as a whole for the last 2,000 years. How many wars have there been? How many oppressions have there been? How many difficulties have there been through all of that time? It has never ended. It has been continuous. And we think things are bad today, but I tell you the truth. If you trace back, you'll find it was always like this. Sometimes worse and sometimes better. So today is the day. Today let everyone who's godly offer a prayer. Pray to the Lord and praise him for these things. Praise him that he is patient, that he's forgiving, refreshing, that he's restoring the world, that he's working in the world. Let's pray together right now. Father God, we thank you so much and we thank you that indeed you are patient for if you were not patient, none of us could be saved. And you are forgiving. This is, this is the way of salvation, Lord. This is how we can be saved. This is the only way we can know you. And we praise you for it. For you have offered up your only son, one who did not deserve the crucifixion, one who did not deserve to receive your wrath. But you placed it all upon him. He took it willingly so that we might be saved. He took our place in the punishment. You are forgiving and you are refreshing those who come to you, those who are called by your name, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are lifting them up. You are refreshing them. You are binding their wounds, so to speak, Lord. You are encouraging and you are equipping. And indeed, you are gracious to do so. And Lord, you are restoring all things. We see as you make us new inside that eventually you'll make us all new outside, that you'll make the world all new. The whole creation we hear in, in from your word is just groaning, waiting for the redemption of mankind. And you are bringing it and you will finish it, this great work of restoration. And Father, today you are working and the evidence is this, that here sits a man who deserved your wrath. Here sits a man who was a a rebel to you, and yet you saved him, and he preaches your word. That can only be explained by the Spirit of God. 
Lord, your word goes out and it accomplishes that which you sent it for. Just like you said it would. You said that some people are going to hear this and they're going to hear it. They're going to obey it. And indeed they do. We praise you for this wonderful mystery. And Lord, I pray today for those who are struggling. For those who are struggling with sin, I pray that they would have the faith to repent and turn to you and know you. In Jesus' name we cry out. Amen and amen. And I pray this has been a blessing to you. And I invite you to contact us with any questions or concerns. If this affected you today, don't let the day end without dealing with God on this issue. When you're alone and, and it's you're ready for bed or whatever, talk to him about this repentance. Get real with God about this. And then talk to whoever it is that's been praying for you. Talk to your friend that you know goes to a Bible-believing church and tell them what is happening with you and have them to pray with you. And then God will make himself known. Contact us at whitesrun.org. If you need help finding somebody around you, you can uh, contact us at, by email at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Have a blessed day.